Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank. All right, we got a lot of show for you this week. First up, we're talking to Matthew Gavin Frank. He wrote a book about diamond smuggling in South Africa, which involves more pigeons than I would have predicted before I read this book. Uh, we're also going to talk to Davy Rothbart and Cheryl Sanford about their documentary project. It's called 17 Blocks. It took them like 20 years to make this film, but it is just a fascinating view into Cheryl's family in Washington, D.C. Then Andrew Bird and Jimbo Mathis are going to stop by to play us some music. Speaking of long-running collaborations, Andrew and Jimbo, they've been collaborating for over 25 years since they were back in the Squirrel Nut Zippers. Remember them? All right, so that's the plan. We got about five pounds of live wire. We're trying to fit it into a one-pound bag. We're going to start doing that right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going great this week. Are you ready to play another round of station location identification examination? Yes. This is like my okay. Wordle. I, 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 <laughs> it's like I get Wordle every day and I get sly every week. <laughs> I'm getting worse at Wordle. I don't know. I'm regressing. I think regressing was the word today, actually, which is ironic. Okay. This is where I tell you about a place in the country where LiveWire is on. You try to guess what I'm talking about, okay? Okay. This city is known as both the golf capital of the world and the birthplace of the shag, which oh. is a dance. <laughs> Say no more. You mean the state dance of South Carolina, my home state? Yes. And the city would have to be that great beach town that's Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Boy, that took even <laughs> less time than I was expecting. Boy, you nailed that. That's where a WHMC radio is, where we are on in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So, um... Uh, hello to everyone out there listening and all across the country. Should we get going with the radio show? Let's shag a leg. I knew. I knew it. <laughs> I'm taking that as a yes. All right. Take it away, Elena. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, writer Matthew Gavin Frank. Pigeons have been known to recognize all 26 letters of the English alphabet. Plus, filmmakers Davey Rothbart and Cheryl Sanford from the documentary 17 Blocks. And with music from Andrew Bird and Jimbo Mathis. I mean, you spend your life 
trying to master this incredibly difficult, awkward instrument, who would think that the money's in whistling? I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone for tuning in all over the country, including Myrtle Beach. Uh, We have a packed show this week, so we're going to get right to it. Just a heads up, we asked the Livewire listeners a question, which was, if you could be a bird... What kind of bird would you be and why? (laughs) This is relevant to a number of the guests uh, today. Uh, We're going to read those answers coming up in a moment. First, though, a quick round of the best news we heard all week. This, of course, is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news you heard this week? (laughs) It's not so much good news as it is news, but in a funny way. So on January 18th, the Missouri State Highway Patrol activated its Blue Alert System, which is a system that sends text messages to cell phones all over the state when there's something that they really need to know, some kind of a safety emergency. This Blue Alert read as follows. It said that citizens of Gotham City, Missouri, needed to be on the lookout for a 1978 Dodge GT. But there's one problem with that alert, and that's that there is no such place as Gotham City, Missouri. (laughs) Yeah, I've been through Missouri. I think I would have remembered Gotham City. When I say Gotham, what comes to your mind? Batman. Exactly. Uh, And uh, those of you who are of the Batman iteration circa 1989, the Michael Keaton Batman, might remember that Jack Nicholson, the Joker's character in that film, drove a 1978 Dodge GT. So what happened was they were just testing the alert system and they were just trying to come up with something that they could send internally. And some Batman fan decided that it was (laughs) Gotham City, Missouri that was having this GT alert problem. (laughs) But so then they had to send out a retraction and then they put on Twitter. They were like, "This, please ignore this message. But it was too late because people already realized that this was a reference to that great 1989 film. And they were already giving the blue alert system the business on Twitter like, Uh Uh-oh, Jack Nicholson's in Missouri. (laughs) This town needs an enema. This town needs an enema. If you're going to go... Can we say that on public radio? Who knows? (laughs) The best news that I saw this week is uh, out of Boise, Idaho, where there is a young uh, person living there named Dylan Helbig. He's eight years old. And he told the local news, Elena, that his dream, since he was five was to have a book in the library, in the Boise Public Library. He loves the library, hangs out there all the time. So around Christmas time, his grandmother gave him a journal, and he filled the whole thing in in like a day or two with a story called The Adventures of Dylan Helbig's Christmas by Dylan Helbig Hisself. It's the name (laughs) of the book. It's a riveting plot. Starts with Dylan decorating a Christmas tree, and then the star on top of the tree explodes. Then he gets sucked into a... A portal. He goes back in time to the very first Thanksgiving. (laughs) The plot of the book is just incredible. Um, So Dylan decided that this was something that he wanted to grace the uh, Boise Public Library with, Mm -hmm. this book that he had written. So he snuck it into the library. (laughs) He put a sticker on the spine of the book so it would look like a book in the library. (laughs) And he snuck it into the 
you know, stories section of the Boise Public Library and then left. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) He told his mom about it. And his mom was like, we should probably go get the book, you know, because it's not really part of the library system. They come back and the book is missing. (gasps) They couldn't find it. Because it had somehow, uh, I think somebody had handed it to one of the librarians, somebody had noticed it. But the librarians were so charmed by this book that with Dylan's permission, they put the proper, like, you know, code on it. (gasps) They integrated it into the Boise Public Library system. And now (laughs) it's a book you can check out from the Boise Public Library, The Adventures of Dylan Helbig's Christmas by Dylan Helbig himself. And there is a waiting list for the book. Why did I even bother to get published? I should have just written a book from yep. a notebook and just stuck it in the public library. They asked Dylan, the local TV news, how he was able to get this book that was not a library book into the library system. And he said, I've just always been sneaky, like how I get chocolate. <laughs> this is Dylan. I always be sneaky, like how I get chocolate. So there you go. <laughs> Dylan Helbig at his sneaky ways is the best news that I heard all week. Hey, if you want to get even more best news in your life, the Best News Podcast is now a weekly show. Uh, So make sure you check the Livewire feed wherever you listen to your podcasts for our new show, the Best News Podcast. All right, let's welcome our first guest over to Livewire. He is a writer whose most recent book, Flight of the Diamond Smugglers, details the ways in which carrier pigeons were used by diamond smuggling rings in coastal South Africa. Uh, It's really fascinating stuff. And also... Makes you think about pigeons differently. At least it made me think about pigeons differently. So let's take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Matthew Gavin Frank from last March. Matthew Gavin Frank, welcome to Livewire. Thanks so much for having me, Luke. This may be as excited as I've seen Elena uh, to have a guest on the show. Because you guys go way back, I guess, right? I've seen Elena excited in, in various contexts. Um, so this, this is like super tame Elena Passarella right now, but... Um, this book is, is, is really fascinating and, and just full of things that I just didn't know before I picked it up. Uh, it does start though in a pretty serious place. You and your partner, Luis, have kind of gone through some personal tragedy. Can you, can you kind of talk about where the book starts out and, and how that launched you on the journey that eventually became this book? Yeah, yeah. So um, we, we had a lot of bad luck uh, conceiving uh, a child. We, we had baby fever for a while, and um, it just didn't work out. Uh, we endured a number of miscarriages, and on our sixth, we were just, you know, pretty much knocked out emotionally, physically. And her entire family uh, still lives in South Africa, um, where she was born and raised. And she just needed to be around her intimates at the time. And we decided not only to go visit her family, but we decided to kind of conduct a funeral ceremony of sorts for uh, our last miscarriage at this place called The Big Hole in Kimberley, South Africa, which uh, used to be in like the late 1800s into the early 1900s, this just gaping open pit diamond mine. And now it, it was turned into this really kitschy tourist attraction. And when Louisa was growing up, she and her family would spend these... I mean, she says they're idyllic, but I don't believe her, like, weekends uh, around the big hole uh, because there's nothing idyllic about the big hole. And I went into the big hole museum and started looking at diamond exhibits and became 
curious uh, about the diamond industry there. And then that compelled me to a different area of South Africa in the northwest corner on the Namibian border called the Diamond Coast. And there I discovered um, a bunch of folks who employ ingenious methods for smuggling diamonds out of the mines, including using trained carrier pigeons. So, so you meet a 13-year-old kid named Msizi, and he's got a pigeon named Bartholomew. How did you meet them, and, and, and how do these two uh, sort of uh, team up on this diamond extraction process? I, I met him um, and his mother in a parking lot of a convenience store uh, where, um, as, as luck would have it, we were both buying sheep's neck and cellophane <laughs> and rotten halves of iceberg lettuce. Like uh, you do. Like you do. And, and, so, <laughs> and, and, and so these diamond towns um, along the diamond coast of South Africa were completely cloistered um, for like the better part of 80 years, like mm-hmm. from like 1925, um, damn near all the way up until 2007. And the, the doors were recently thrown open to the public because the area was deemed over mind. And so security started, um, you know, loosening a bit. And so I was an anomalous presence there. Um, These communities were kept in isolation for generations. And so when an outsider is there, folks come up to you. And so Msizi and his mother just like approached us. And we got into a, a conversation and one thing led to another. And then uh, I was permitted by his mother to interview him. I was surprised that this uh, young man spoke to you because what he's engaged in, I mean, he's he's diamond mining, but then he's also trying to sneak some of the diamonds out to help feed his family. This is a certain amount of personal risk for him, right? Because, I mean, this is the consequences are really bad if they get caught doing this. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, security is just um, in these local communities are just given a lot of leeway to enact their own sorts of unofficial punishments. I mean, that could range from being evicted from the diamond town and just being like turned out into the gullet of the desert to being beaten, uh, to being maimed and historically to being killed. So like back in the day, um, De Beers actually gave security folks off the books commissions um, for every diamond smuggler that they caught, which of course resulted in many a fabricated charge Mm -hmm. Um, and then the beating or sometimes execution of um, the falsely accused. And so there's just a long tradition of these sorts of punishments being enacted, but folks would still risk it all of the time um, because De Beers is still keeping these coastal communities in this like stranglehold of poverty while they're running off to the bank, of course. This is Livewire from PRX. We are listening to a conversation we had with Matthew Gavin Frank about his book, Flight of the Diamond Smugglers. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we 
We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic Drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use Livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are listening back to our interview with Matthew Gavin Frank about his book, Flight of the Diamond Smugglers, about the diamond trade in South Africa, and in particular, people who are trying to smuggle diamonds out using pigeons. Uh, We recorded this last year. Take a listen to this. This uh, 13-year-old boy, Msizi, and his pigeon Bartholomew, uh, are kind of the stars of the book in my mind. How, how does one sneak a pigeon into a diamond mine? Because they're like looking for that now. They know, the security knows this is one of the things, right? Yeah, um, but uh, the the interesting thing is is that South Africa has made it illegal to over-radiate a person. So the Bureau of Security has um, x-ray machines that everybody has to pass through upon entering and exiting the mine. But because of this law, it's a human rights violation to over-radiate somebody, um, the machine kind of lights up and whirs in exactly the same way whether somebody is actually receiving an x-ray and being radiated and mapped or if they're receiving a placebo. Hmm. So folks never really know when they're actually being x-rayed or not. And so folks risk it and are sometimes caught but are oftentimes not caught. So Msizi would oftentimes uh, sneak Bartholomew into the mine concealed in a lunchbox. I mean, next to a half a sandwich and a little bag of potato chips. And Msizi had fashioned like these little bags sewn out of of, like Hemsbach hide. And he would tie one to each of Bartholomew's feet, maybe one beneath each of Bartholomew's wings, which is a risk because a bird can suffocate. Mm -hmm. The air vents are under the bird's wings. And set Bartholomew into the air to fly back to his home and his mom. 
Yeah, this book is is so fascinating, but I will just mention to people that the pigeons do not do well in the book. Like if you're somebody who is, as I am now having read the book, much more identified with pigeons. Mm-hmm. There's just so many interesting things about their physiology. Mm-hmm. You do such a great job, Matthew, of writing about Bartholomew. I feel really connected uh, to, to him as an animal. Um, did you have many thoughts about pigeons before you started writing this book? Not, not really, no. But uh, I, I, I'm just absolutely in love with them now, and so yeah, so much of what I saw and was a, a part of there was was um, incredibly disturbing and incredibly harsh with regard to the animal abuse that was going on there and the the pigeon abuse specifically. Um, that in the book, I, I just had to kind of turn away from the horror in places mm-hmm. and just find like beautiful things about pigeons mm-hmm. to talk about. What's your favorite pigeon fact, Matt? I, I love the fact that they uh, kind of pass what's known as the mirror test, mm-hmm. um, which means they they recognize their own reflections in the mirror, which is incredibly rare. Uh, Believe me, I don't after the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> um, but but they also like pigeons have been known to recognize all twenty six letters of the English alphabet. What? Yes, yes. B. F. Skinner uh, did this um, test that discovered that pigeons are superstitious. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is crazy. They recognize our faces. Um, they recognize human faces. So if you treat a pigeon kindly, it will remember you as a kind person. If you abuse a pigeon, it will remember you as an abuser. Mm. Wow. Uh, we're talking to Matthew Gavin Frank. His new book is Flight of the Diamond Smugglers about the diamond industry in South Africa in particular, some of the links that people will go to to try to sneak some of the diamonds out of the mine so that they can make a little money on the side. When you hear about a pigeon like Bartholomew with like three or four diamonds strapped to its body, that sounds to my ear like thousands and thousands of dollars. Like, you know, this this person would be set for, for a year or something. But how much money are we actually talking about? So these are these are typically rough diamonds, um, unpolished diamonds, uh, and so I mean just to give you an idea of of what De Beers pays folks compared to what they make, an annual diamond harvest can be up to uh, like 176 million carats a year. A one carat diamond after it's been polished um, can run anywhere from like three grand to 23 grand, Mm. uh, depending. I mean, the average being somewhere around like 6,500 per carat. When I was interviewing Mcz, so this is back, let's say, in like 2016, he told me he was making about 20 cents per carat um, as part of the legitimate bonus and commission that De Beers gave him. Um, on the smuggling market, on the side, he he assured me it was more than that, but not a whole lot more. Um, wow. And because diamond smuggling is so ubiquitous there, the rough stones just don't fetch that high a price, um, even, you know, in the in the back alleys of the so-called illicit trade. Mm. Do you feel, Matthew, like there's any moral defense for people buying and wearing diamonds now that you've spent so much time studying this and meeting the people who are affected by it? I mean, is people wearing diamonds part of the problem? 
Yeah, um, but the problem is so far gone that what do we do about it now? And so, yes, I think, you know, people's lust for diamonds is is very seriously part of the problem. Um, the fact that people don't interrogate De Beers' fictional narrative um, when it comes to rarity and thereby value. Um, diamonds are not rare. Um, they just maintain a stronghold um, mm -hmm. on them and release them onto the market ever so slowly and create this, like, fictionalized story of rarity and value. Mm -hmm. uh, if, like, a stone washes up on the beach and it happens to be a diamond and you pick it up and touch it, those beaches are covertly patrolled by, a, you know, diamond mine security. And if you're caught doing that, you're arrested. Um, this is the lengths they go to in order to maintain this narrative of, of preciousness. But I, I really have no solution as to like what we can do about it now, because if everybody stopped buying diamonds, that would be bad for De Beers, but it would also send all of these folks even deeper into poverty. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. the the solution I think at, at this point is to continue asking the question: How can we do better? Mm -hmm. How can we, you know, treat these people humanely and pay people fairly and not abuse them and yeah. things? But it's really, really complicated. Mm -hmm. So much of this book is about carrying things, you know, it's like, and you write about that. It's like the pigeons are carrying the diamonds, uh, and, and you're carrying in the story, this weight of this tragedy that you and your partner have been through. I mean, this, I don't know if this is a corny question, but like, did you identify with the pigeons? Um, yes, I think, but that sounds, it almost sounds self-aggrandizing because, um, they're so lovely. And, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, we've just and, been talking about how they're miracles. And you're, you're like, yeah, I consider myself the same. And, and, so, and so pure. I mean, like the ancient Greeks named their prettiest islands after pigeons, right? Mm. Um, doves, uh, mm -hmm. which are pigeons. They're pigeons. You know, um, are, are symbols of purity. Um, these, are, these are beautiful, beautiful birds um, mm. and smart birds. And they've been mm. so good to us, right? Yeah. Uh, well, that's a that's a beautiful place to end this. And this is a beautiful book. It's Flight of the Diamond Smugglers, A Tale of Pigeons, Obsession, and Greed Along Coastal South Africa. Uh, Matthew, Gavin, Frank, thank you so much for coming on the Livewire House Party and telling us about it. It was my pleasure, Luke and Elena. This was such a joy for me. That was Matthew, Gavin, Frank right here on Livewire. His book, Flight of the Diamond Smugglers, A Tale of Pigeons, Obsession, and Greed Along Coastal South Africa is available now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Nathan Corser and Kristen Miner of Portland, Oregon. Nathan and Kristen are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting our show with a donation each month. And we are very thankful for that support because it is genuinely how we are able to do the program. So thanks to Nathan and Kristen for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we ask the Livewire listeners a question. We have a lot of bird talk on the show this week, Elena. And so we asked the audience, if you could be a bird, what kind of bird would you be and why? What are folks saying? Uh, Christopher says, if I could be any kind of bird, I would be a crow. Excellent choice, Christopher. <laughs> Christopher's rationale is, I would be almost as smart as I am now, but I could fly. 
Which is just a lovely self-pat on the back. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. You're right, though. Crows are so smart. Like, if you're going to be a bird, but, like, what if you were a dumb bird? And then, <laughs> yeah, yeah you can fly, but you don't – you are terrible at Wordle. Like, that would be bad. But if you were a crow, you'd still – I'm. there are crows out there that are smarter than me, Elena. I mean, that's not even There are crows that debate. get the Wordle in two, I've heard. <laughs> All right, what's another bird that one of our listeners wants to be? I feel like this one's a little more in the dumb bird category, but hey, no judgment. Uh, Nina says, I'd like to be an ostrich. They're the fastest, the largest, and they've got three stomachs. (laughs) And look at the glorious eggs I'd lay. The three stomachs thing is news to me. I thought you knew everything there was to know about birds, Elena. You've written extensively on birds and the animal kingdom. This is news to you? I'm a little prejudiced about ostriches because my dad took me to a really low-rent zoo in central South Carolina when I was about four, (laughs) and I was on his shoulders, and I had a stick, and I tried to feed the stick to an ostrich who was just separated by a chain-link fence from us, and the ostrich grabbed my little white kid I took it off my foot and took it away. And then my poor dad <laughs> had to t- send me back home to my mom because this is one of those custody junket trips. <laughs> I was missing a shoe. <laughs> Ostrich theft. Yep. That could really, that could sour you on a particular kind of bird for the rest of your life. You're young, you're impressionable, you're shoeless. <laughs> All right, one more bird that one of our listeners wants to be. Well, this one is just beautiful. Lori says, I'd like to be a robin because shortly before she passed, my grandmother told me to Hmm. always look for the first robin of spring. That was her way of telling me she would always love me. That is really sweet. All right, thank you uh, to everyone who wrote in with their responses this week. We've got another audience question for next week's show, which we'll read you at the end of this episode. In the meantime talk about our next guests who met way back in 1999. This is when Davy Rothbart showed up one day unannounced on Cheryl Sanford's doorstep. Cheryl's nine-year-old son, Emmanuel, had brought Davy home after they met at a pickup basketball game. And it was the beginning of a really unlikely collaboration in which Davy, white guy from Michigan, and the Sanfords, a black family in Washington, D.C., documented their lives for 20 years using a simple camcorder. The result of all that footage is the film 17 Blocks, which follows the Sanford family through their highs and their lows. The film also has all these amazing little small moments of of grace and beauty. The Washington Post calls it remarkable. Let's take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Davy Rothbart and Cheryl Sanford, recorded last year. Davy and Cheryl, welcome to LiveWire. Thank Thank you. you. Davy, let's uh, start with how this film actually kind of came about. So you... You were friends with Cheryl's sons, Smurf and Emmanuel. You'd met them playing pickup basketball. Uh, And so you're hanging out with the Sanfords. When you have this video camera, you're kind of recording things. When did you realize this could actually be a documentary film? You know, it really, all the early years, it was just born out of the friendship. You know, like I was in my early 20s. It was my first time being far from home. And and I was kind of lost. And and Cheryl likes to say that, you like to say that that you guys adopted me. which is kind of how it felt to me. And so I think filming, even though that was, you know, one of our initial ideas, um, it, it was just really one activity among many that we would do together, you know. I remember I taught, I taught Emmanuel how to drive when he was like 11 years old, you know. Um, and uh, just we'd do all kinds of fun stuff. But, but we always would try to be conscientious about filming something. And, and then, you know, I think everything changed years later, probably after 10 years of footage, um, you know, when, when gun violence touched the family. 
I wanted to ask about that because there's a, a an extremely tragic point in the film, Cheryl, where you lose one of your children uh, in a in a incident involving gun violence. Did you ever consider stopping having Davy document your family after that? Because that had to be a really emotionally raw time for no, you. No, no, that I I wanted more uh, footage at that time because that was my baby child and. It, you know, that was the end of his life. And so I, you know, I, I felt fortunate that I had someone with a camera, a movie camera, that could take these last moments of everything. You know, I'm talking about mm. the funeral, him in the casket. I wanted that. I said, maybe this can help some people see that this is a person they could see that this person had a life, that mm -hmm. he meant something to people, and that you just didn't mm -hmm. kill a random person all of a sudden. You killed someone, and you've hurt a lot of people. Yeah, you I know? feel like you, you saw that this footage could have this value that, you know, this happened so much. So many of your friends had lost children to gun violence, too, but none had been filmed throughout their lives as much as your child had been. Uh -huh. I remember that day and you saying people people have to know what's going on. They have to be able to walk in my shoes, you know, or, or someone's shoes who's dealing with the loss of this and seeing, like you said, what it, what it means to have that person pulled away from your family and from the community. Um, there was a moment in the film that really gave me a different perspective on, on, on life in the neighborhood that you've been living in, Cheryl, where there's a T-shirt shop. And it would appear that their main business model is making T-shirts that memorialize people who've passed away. Mm -hmm. Many of those people have passed away because of gun violence. And the fact that that's a business model that exists, I mean, that was a world I hadn't really been in. Was that part of your hope with, with making this film along with Davey to just bring people into a, a, a version of the world that they may not know about? Yes, yes, very much so. I know people lose children from cancer. That's something that is considered like a normal uh, tragedy. But, you know, this was an unprepared for tragedy. You know, I just wanted people to see, you know, yeah. an everyday, everyday people that it's not just me, it's a whole lot of us. You know, it's, it's, it's clear, Cheryl, that this is something that's still really a, a very emotionally raw thing for you, even as we're talking. Yeah. Has it been yeah. hard for you at all upon the release of the film? To, to revisit this? I mean, this is your life in vivid detail and parts of your life that, you know, must have been so hard. No, um, since the release, of, no, because I, I, I experience a, a moment every day where I feel pain from, hmm. um, I mean, just little things, you know, he, you know, he's not forgotten, you know, he's gone, but he's not forgotten. So I, I experience a lot of things because I'm a daydreamer. Hmm. <laughs> so maybe I'll see someone else that's approximately his age and favors him. And, you know, I'll compare it. And then there's times when I I wonder what he would be doing right now, you know, if he were here. You know, and I know some of his plans that he had. But, you know, I just wonder, you know, where he would be at in life. Yeah. I want to really stress, too, because we've been talking about the real serious side of this film. I want to mention this is a very joyful film as well. <laughs> You know, watching your family, yeah. Cheryl, live their lives and have fun together. Uh, do you have a favorite part of the film? Like, is there a part of the film that makes you smile? <laughs> All of it, Luke. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> um, because, you know, I get to see my baby and it, it, it makes me feel closer. Seeing him 
alive and breathing. Mm. But um, I don't have, I don't think I have a favorite part, you know? Do you have a favorite part, Davey? Is there a moment that you just love? Like maybe just from a filmmaking standpoint. And you you and I have talked about this film before. I know Emmanuel shot some of the cooler shots in the film, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I see new things in the film each time I see it. And uh, yeah, some of, the, some of the footage that Emmanuel shot when he was nine years old is really striking. You know, there's like there's kind mm-hmm. of lyrical images and he, he had such a poetic eye. He he really had this like bright creative streak, and so when you see some of this, oh yeah, that he did, yeah, and <laughs> and Cheryl, you know, when you see some of that footage that he shot, and you're just kind of amazed, like, all right, a nine year old shot it, and and some of it's just funny, you know, him bursting in on Denise or bursting in on Smurf, and them, you yeah. know, like reason being like, get out of here with the camera, you know, some of that reminds me of my own family, you know, like, but for me also just seeing Justin because you know Justin reminds everybody of of. Emmanuel and Justin is is Emmanuel's nephew. Mm-hmm. Um, later in the film, you know, twenty years have passed, and now Justin is about the same age that Emmanuel was when it, when we first started filming with Emmanuel twenty years ago. Uh, we're talking to Davy Rothbard and Cheryl Sanford. Uh, Davy helped produce a documentary about Cheryl's family. It's called Seventeen Blocks, and it it follows the Sanfords over about twenty years of their life. Uh, this was a pretty long term project. Cheryl did uh, at some point. Did your friends just think you were crazy that you were like letting someone film you for multiple decades? And like, were they like, this is not going to be a film? Like, did you ever think this is maybe not going to end up being a thing? <laughs> I, like I said, I was surprised. It, I, I'm overwhelmed by it because the decision to really turn it into this documentary was because of his death. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of odd to see that, uh, like, especially, like, times when we would go, ride down the street <laughs> and certain streets and you you got the camera and the lights on and it's nighttime and people, like, <laughs> you know, the people that stand out on the corner, you know, that made them think that I was somebody important, you know. But, you know, I think from, from the moment that everything changed, you know, I think we shared a mission, I, not just me and you, but Smurf and Denise and, you know, like, something good has to come out of this. True. This film, as you put it, you know, there's an opportunity here to bring people into my world, you know, and... and Not only my world, to the world. To, yes. To reality, mm. you know. Not just the way they see it on HBO <laughs> or uh, Showtime. <laughs> I'm talking about real, true life. You know, there's something going on everywhere, but certain things should be and can be prevented, you know, and I don't know how... It's going to be done, but it has to be done. They've got to see what they're doing to themselves. Cheryl, I've heard you talk about when it's a statistic, you know, it's hard for people to really grasp onto the scope of the problem. But when it, they actually get to know a family and people that watch the film, they feel like they're part of your family, just like I've been invited to be. They feel it. They That's feel right. it the same way that we had to feel it. Yeah. 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 I um. I heard you say something, Cheryl, a moment ago, kind of as a joke, but it resonated with me. You said when when Davy was filming your family and had the lights on and everything, people were thinking that you're really somebody important. But of course, you really are somebody important. And I feel like well, that okay. that's what comes through in the film is that everybody's okay. important. You know what I mean? This random family in Washington, D.C. that's living 17 blocks from the Capitol that I didn't know existed three weeks ago, the Sanfords, are important, you okay. know? Their experience matters. And I feel like that's the takeaway from this film. What are, what are you hoping people get from watching this, Cheryl? Wow. Luke. <laughs> um, exactly what they see. The pain. 
mm. the pain. And that that is real life for us, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one day it's big news and the next day it's gone. It's no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of us that, you know, we care, but they don't get off the sofa. So <laughs> that's my, mm-hmm. my, my objective, too, that I was hoping that even those mothers who've lost children, hey, you know, we, we wanted sympathy. We want everybody to cry with us. But, hey, we just go back to our normal life afterwards. No, we've got to band together and, and, and make this a unified thing all around America because it happens in North Carolina. It happens in New Orleans. It happens in Chicago. It happens in New York. But, mm-hmm. whoa, wait a minute. That's, that's pretty sad, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think this film is going to get a lot of people off the couch. I know that it had me, I mean, really, it had me thinking about this, this kind of event in a, in a different and more real way than, than I would have otherwise. So Cheryl, thank you so much mm-hmm. for, um, you know, sharing your family's life and, and the ups and the downs, uh, of the Sanford family over the last 20 years, uh, with Davey and with us, the viewers <laughs> and Davey, thanks for uh, being the weird white guy with a camcorder <laughs> who showed up at their house, because I think, I think this is a really amazing film. Thanks so much. Thank you, Luke. That was Davey Rothbart and Cheryl Sanford right here on Livewire. Their film, 17 Blocks, is streaming now on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, Davey and Cheryl have also started an organization called Washington to Washington, which brings kids from the Sanford's neighborhood in D.C., as well as from Detroit and New Orleans, on hiking and camping adventures every summer. This is Livewire from PRX. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. If you haven't noticed already, we've had sort of a bird theme running through this week's show. We had Matthew, Gavin, Frank talking about pigeons. Our audience question was about birds. That was all sort of, I think, reverse engineered because one of my very favorite musicians is now here waiting in the wings. Ah. Andrew Bird. He's here with Jimbo Mathis. They met years ago as part of Squirrel Nut Zippers. Now they've joined forces again for a new album called These 13, which details the special type of human connection that can survive any distance of time or geography. Uh, Let's take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Andrew Bird and Jimbo Mathis, recorded last year. Jimbo Mathis and Andrew Bird, welcome to the Livewire House Party. Good to be here. Hey, thank you, man. So nice to be here, Luke. Uh, I've been fans of both of uh, your work for for many years. I, I know you've said, Andrew, that uh, if you didn't meet Jimbo, your music, you you said would have gone in a different, more cerebral, complex trajectory. What do you mean by that? I mean, at the time, I was coming out of music school, and I was into things that were a little heady, you know. And the people I played with were did a lot of talking about music hmm. and. Uh, more, maybe more talking than actual playing. And so it was really refreshing to get invited into Jimbo's sort of Southern weirdo Gothic world where everyone uh, lived pretty hard and played music all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was very little discussion of what we were trying to do. You know, I don't know where my music would have gone if I hadn't met Jimbo, but he was certainly a huge influence on me and just sort of, unlocked some things in me that were wanting to get out as far as how I put on a show, you know, being a showman, because Jimbo's got this kind of old school vaudeville, like, you know, wild man mm. stage <laughs> presence. And I was like, I saw that. I was like, I, I want to do that, mm-hmm. you know? 
Jimbo, did you pick up anything from Andrew in terms of, I don't know, his approach to music? It's it's odd because we at that time we were both playing a style of and a type of music, early American jazz and cabaret and theater theatrical type stuff that we don't do anymore. Mm-hmm. In neither one of us. Um to the zippers he added a a skill set that was needed for me to <laughs> some of my compositions, you know, like the ghost of Stephen Foster, you know, it's, uh-huh. I, I have friends that are uh, violinists, fiddle players now that can, that are excellent and can barely play what he composed for that song. You huh. know, I, I guess I don't, just, I don't know if I can play that. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and it's it, a young it, man's game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a hard part. And, and I mean, he basically composed it on the spot. We didn't write music. You know, I, I still don't write I say compose, I mean, you just get struck by a lightning bolt. But, uh, I mean, he brought so much to so many of our songs that add an elegance, a grace, a, a good tone, a, a beautiful interpretation of, of my song. So we all really were kind of co-conspirators there. He was the person I leaned on for most of my compositions from that point forward. <laughs> I think I think it was kind of like I was trying to unlearn things and devolve and <laughs> Jimbo and the Zippers were trying to evolve as musicians and we met it somewhere in the That's middle. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it was, it wasn't until we made Jimbo's record songs for Rosetta, which is a tribute to Charlie Patton. Really, he really turned me on to the Charlie Patton uh, music that I still listen to to this day and still cover his tunes. And that's what this new record, this collaboration after 20 some years is continuing that conversation. Uh, this is Livewire. We're talking to Andrew Bird and Jimbo Mathis. Their new album is These 13. Uh, yeah, what was the process of creating this album like? Did it happen during the pandemic? It was just before. Uh, we made the, did the last session in January uh, before the pandemic hit. But it could have just as well have been. I mean, we wrote it remotely. Jimbo was in North Mississippi and I was in L.A. And he would send me voice memos, little demos of him, a snippet of a couple verses and then I would hear it and be like oh I see what you're doing there and I, I would sort of answer the question that he was asking and it was a uh, for people that like us that tend to write alone it was kind of a revelation mm-hmm. to have that kind of uh, very quick uh, bouncy conversation musically going lyrically because um, we I would just you know, immediately hear what he, what metaphor he was working with or how to take it to the next level or see the other side of the question or, you know, it was great. The cool thing about it is that we were able to record before the pandemic. So we were actually close proximity singing like we, you know, around a, an old RCA microphone, just a few feet from each other, you know, with no headphones and just breathing the same air and feeling the, the vibrations, you know, of our voice. And you can mm-hmm. hear the air, you can hear people... Mm-hmm. <gasps> breathing you know you can hear me freaking out thinking i'm (laughs) about to mess up you know but that's part of my style you know it's like i have a flaw in my playing but it's it's not a fatal flaw it's just a it's it's a cool quirk so you can hear me finding my way through the song and and andrew responding to that just like we do you know almost on a psychic level and we always had that do you remember jimbo the first time that you heard andrew whistle I, di- I didn't really whistle on my records in, until in the 90s. I didn't even 
think of it. Really, I, I didn't. I didn't know it was a thing, you know, until I, <laughs> in, until I sort of started catching up with him here in, here in the past four or five years, you know. So, I mean, you spend your life trying to master this incredibly difficult awkward instrument who would think that the money's in whistling yeah. <laughs> so you weren't like the whistling champ of lake forest illinois growing up andrew no i mean i did it incessantly i would annoy my family but it wasn't uh wasn't tapped as a uh in a talent show somewhere you know <laughs> this is live wire uh we're talking to andrew bird and jimbo mathis we have to take a very quick break but don't go anywhere because when we come back we're going to hear a song from andrew and jimbo and you do not want to miss it so stay with us Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we are talking to musicians Andrew Bird and Jimbo Mathis. This album is called These 13 and it's got 13 tracks on it. What is it about these 13 tracks? What are you looking to con- convey to the world? It's just, it's a reflection. It's a reflection on where we're both at and with the world we see, you know, in, in, in the guise of, of folk music, which is what folk music should be about. It should be about folks. <laughs> I always heard something in Jimbo's playing that I just don't hear anymore, that I wanted to showcase without any other distractions. Um, and so that was the impetus that drove me to ask Jimbo to make this duo record. There's there's something in, in the way Jimbo... Um, like he was saying, the, the flaws, I suppose you call them that, but um, that are really, really refreshing to hear. And, you know, that, that were more common in pre-war, almost pre-radio mm-hmm. music before, uh, you know, the eight-bar phrase became the, the standard mm-hmm. <laughs> for every verse, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so there'll be like a little, he'll flip the beat around, he won't go to the four chord when you expect, you know, it's just, you don't know... What he's gonna do? Ooh, that's so really, exciting! <laughs> I, yeah, I find it's that thrilling. Exciting. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it can be quite shocking. Adds an element of danger and uncertainty. Yeah. There, you know, it's very thrilling. You know, yeah. and so when when you actually finish the song, it's it's not like you sat there and, and had a recital. It's like we just did something. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of funky too, in a weird way. <laughs> it's kind right? of funky. Like, yeah, like... It is. There, there's a funkiness there. Uh, well, let's uh, let's let's hear some funky, dangerous music here. What yes. song are we going to hear <laughs> from Jimbo Mathis and Andrew Bird? Uh, this is "Sweet Oblivion." Chromosomes didn't lie 
you buy Yeah 7XXYXY Jimbo Mathis and Andrew Bird. Their new album is These 13. Jimbo and Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the Live Wire House Party. We appreciate you. Thank you for having us. Thank you all so much. That was Andrew Bird and Jimbo Mathis right here on Live Wire. Also, Andrew Bird is heading out on tour along with Iron and Wine this summer, and they've got tickets available over there at andrewbird.net. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. Oh, this is exciting. We are going to be talking to Michael Schur. He is a television writer and producer. He created or co-created such shows as Parks and Rec, <gasps> Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and The Good Place. Uh, we're also going to be talking to the hilarious and wildly inventive comedian Demi Adigi eBay, and we're going to hear some new music from the rollicking folk duo Shovels and Rope, making their triumphant return to Livewire. And as always, we're going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week? 
What tiny, unethical thing do you find yourself doing? <laughs> I would like to recuse myself from that segment next week uh, on the grounds that I may incriminate myself. Because <laughs> I got a long list. All right. If you have an answer to that question, a tiny, unethical thing you find yourself doing, and you can submit anonymously, too. We're not trying to yeah. blow up anybody's spot. Uh, go ahead and hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We are at LiveWire Radio. All right. That's going to do it. For this week's episode, a huge thanks to our guests, Matthew Gavin Frank, Davey Rothbart, Cheryl Sanford, Andrew Bird, and Jimbo Mathis. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. A. Walker Spring composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Nathan Corser and Kristen Miner of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Livewire. When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. <laughs>